You're listening to the Native Plants Healthy Planet Podcast, presented by Pinelands Nursery. Here are your hosts, Fran Chismar and Tom Knezic. Welcome back to the Native Plants Healthy Planet Podcast presented by Pinelands Nursery. I am Fran Chismar. And I'm Tom Knezic. Welcome to episode 183. Today we have a, a requested episode. Uh, we're joined by Adam D'Angelo from Project Pawpaw. But, uh, this was actually like, it, it's funny how you have something planned and then you start getting feedback from the listeners with posts in the Facebook group. And I have to say like, before Adam contacted us, I didn't know Adam, and I yep. didn't know his business model or what he was doing. And once he shared with us, I don't even know. I proudly have your sticker on my Yeti. <laughs> so it's, I mean, we were really excited about what you're doing, and we have a lot of questions. Unfortunately, we saved them for today. <laughs> yes, that's true. But we were also saying because you, you were – Living in New Jersey, but now you're moving back to Wisconsin. I just went to Wisconsin for the first time, and um, and it then was we my were talking second. About, it was my yeah. second or third time. Actually. And we were talking about for all the. I think it's probably the Midwesterners now, but yeah. outside of that, unless you know someone from Wisconsin or know someone who's been to Wisconsin, um, you might not have heard of the beer Spotted Cow. But we New, had our first Glaris. Is that New Glaris spotted yeah. cow? Yeah, yeah. There you and go. Uh, so I had my first spotted cow experience after hearing it for probably a decade. I did too. And um, which really, I driving around Wisconsin, I wouldn't known I was in Wisconsin except for when we were getting the spotted cow because we went into the grocery store liquor store, and the amount of flannel and just how <laughs> packed it was for a Monday <laughs> at like four p.m. Uh, that was the Wisconsin experience right there. Yeah. We're in a flannel right now. Yeah. <laughs> but I guess at some point, Spotted Cow was sold outside of Wisconsin. And then when they built the new brewery, they decided, oh, we can barely meet demand in Wisconsin. Let's keep it. Let's keep it here. So I'd heard it was a tax thing. They didn't want to pay taxes. They didn't want to deal with like the legal hurdles of selling beer outside their home state. That could mm. be true, too. Yeah. Well, I think we'll be happy to hear that. The Midwesterners are just as enthusiastic about Yingling as well. Oh, they really? Can't get that yeah. Out there, so yeah. I had that that experience being from New Jersey, not Pennsylvania, but close to the Yingling Brewery. When I visit friends in Massachusetts who couldn't get it, they like asked me to bring it to them. And well, it's, yeah. it's, I had friends in Colorado that were so excited when it showed up, and I was like, "Oh, you know, that's not a big deal." Like I've been drinking it since I turned twenty-one. But then when Fat Tire came out here, yeah. they're like, "That's like." Like no different than Coors Light to us. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and, you know they're like that's not a big deal. So I guess it it depends. But uh, what was Spotted Cow a big deal to you? Having it, yeah, because yeah. I'd heard so much about it. Okay. And the first one, um, which Fran, you didn't you didn't know this until now. Uh, Fran, oh was, Steve told me. Fran, Steve Fran, <laughs> okay, he didn't know this. We uh, we stopped in the Giordano's uh, uh, to get like one of the chain ones. To go get our first deep dish pizza, which I've never had in Chicago either, and um, and people are really confused. I thought we were talking about Wisconsin. Now you're talking about Chicago. We were, flew into Chicago. We drove all around and yeah. went into Wisconsin. And uh, we're going to talk about this previously <laughs> on a Buzz episode. But uh, yeah, we were like, well, we're parked now, so well, let's, I let's spilled, have one in the parking I, lot. I so we shared one pizza yeah. grease all over myself. So yeah. I went into a. <laughs> we went to get gas. I had to get a Tide stick, and. Uh, 
I guess Tom and Steve chugged one in the parking lot while I was. Yeah. No, this uh, was pre-pizza. <laughs> oh, pre-pizza? Pre-pizza, yeah. We, <laughs> we split one in the parking lot. Literally split a can in the parking lot. Oh, I didn't know that. While we waited that. you to run in, get the pizza, and come back. Oh, I had in no idea. Like a, he was gone for like a minute, and it was, <laughs> you, he didn't even know. <laughs> man, man, I missed well, out. Yeah. But, yep. And how was your first spot at Cal Experience? Like, did did someone say you have to try this, or did you just happen to? Have no, one? no, they're very excited to share with you if you show up and you're like, I've never had spotted cow. They yeah. don't get a can; they get a pitcher. Oh, oh okay. yeah, you know, yeah. So you go to the. And Union. when was this? When you were like 11, 12? It's, <laughs> no, <it's, laughs> no, I, I grew up in in uh, New Jersey. I oh, okay, to, yeah. Went to Wisconsin yeah. for grad school. Gotcha. Yeah. Okay, cool. All right, awesome. Cool. So we should probably yeah. start talking about. Yeah, later. we should probably stop <laughs> making fun of Wisconsinites too. We're not. It's, we're not. Lake Geneva, actually, Wisconsin. I might have been one a little the, bit. It's, it's one of the the most beautiful places I've ever witnessed in my travels. It's like yeah. a little oasis. I don't know if you've ever been there. I Adam. Yeah. yeah, but it's it's actually quite beautiful. Actually, John Mark Courtney was telling me he camped there. Oh, was, no way. Yeah. yeah. He's like, we had a campground. We were just doing a hammock camping, and then it turned out to, to get being the lows of the low 40s. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, summer in Wisconsin. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, right. yeah, I should have thought something was up when with a name like D'Angelo that you might not originally have been from Wisconsin, but... We're really here to talk about pawpaws, mm-hmm. and what got you so interested in in pawpaws that you decided to come up with the the pawpaw well, project? Actually, could, do you mind saying who you are, where you're oh, from? Oh yeah, we and, uh, yeah. yeah. What That's, what your business yeah. is? Sure thing. Uh, my name is Adam D'Angelo. I'm from New Jersey, and I uh, currently live in Wisconsin. And I'm the director of Project Pawpaw, which is a crowdfunded research and breeding program for North America's largest native fruit the pawpaw. Uh, and pretty much what we're doing is we're raising money to do large research orchards so that we can do uh, plant breeding, research, and market development to help pawpaws play a larger role in the modern food system. Fantastic. So as Tom was saying, what kind of got, what sparked your interest in pawpaw? What was your first experience and what got you thinking about this? So pawpaws have been a lifelong thing for me, actually. I When I was 11, I went to visit my brother at the Cornell Research Orchards and I saw a pawpaw tree, and I said, what is that? And he said, oh, it's, it's a fruit. I'm like, no, I know all the fruits. <laughs> There's apples and oranges and bananas. And, you know, it was a cool new fruit I'd never heard of, and it, it really sparked my interest, and that's what it was. For a long time for me, it was just a cool fruit that I hadn't heard of. Uh, and I was always enthusiastic about them. I planted some trees that year, uh, and it wasn't until I went to school for plant breeding and genetics that I realized it was more than just a cool fruit. It was a cool fruit with a lot of potential, uh, a lot of potential as a sustainable crop for small farmers, uh, as as a food for community members, uh, as as a way to help improve our the stability and equitability of our food system. So it's it, it really has morphed to be a lot more than that. And so I started working on this in a very concerted way, probably three years ago. And this is now our first sort of public facing. Uh, fundraising campaign that was that kicked off about a month and a half ago and it's just been outstanding uh so much positivity in the world it's i don't know if you have seen it for us you know my expert first experience with paul paul wasn't until i started working here 16 years ago and realized it was something that i was selling and tom's father don collected some paul paul from his property because they had some on their property and and shared it and it's i remember thinking like why did it take this long in my life to come across this and something that I enjoy 
so what's wrong with like my first thought was what's wrong with this mm-hmm. that it's not commercially readily available did you research that going into it? like why is yeah. why doesn't anyone what were some of the the things that you you discovered in looking at that well let's go back a bit in case okay. any of the listeners here haven't uh, had a pawpaw what it pretty much is it's a large maybe a lima bean shaped fruit it's green skin yellow flesh has about 10 large almond sized black seeds in the middle and and the flesh is very soft it's has the texture of a ripe avocado and it tastes like a mix of banana and mango very tropical fruit it tastes tropical because it came from something tropical it got trapped up here when the continents divided uh, it's related to soursop and cherry moya, the custard apples in South America. So what you have is this delicious fruit that grows really well. It's adapted for life in North America. Uh, you know, the trees are relatively pest-free. Uh, they they produce high yields of, of large, palatable, not just palatable, delicious fruit. Uh, what's really holding them back is the shelf life. They're almost ephemeral. When you pick a pawpaw, if you don't have a refrigerator or anything, you might have days, you know, a couple days before it goes bad. Mm. Uh, if you get it in the refrigerator right away and you pick it at the right stage of ripeness, you can get that up to a week or two. Okay. Um, but for, for a wild pawpaw, it is so short-lived that even a small farmer really struggles to grow them, harvest them, get them to a farmer's market and get them home. Because people, you know, Americans in particular are... We're not so good at using our fresh produce, you know, <laughs> like e- even, you know, the, the rugged stuff in the grocery store, 40% of that uh, goes to food waste every year. Yeah. 40% of our produce is wasted. So um, I think it's really a shelf life issue. That was my, that was my guess, like from my own experience. And I didn't know if that was, if I was overgeneralizing in general by saying it had a short shelf life. Cause I've noticed once you pick it, like if you're not eating it then, or like I would, refrigerate it for a day or two and then get a cold and eat it and it seemed like that was pretty much it yeah so i think i think it's a combination of factors really because if you look it it's so hard to start an industry for something you know you have to educate people what you're actually selling what the fruit is how to eat it if they don't know what it is you know they're a little bit hesitant to try it so if there's not a demand for it in the market then there's not going to be a supply of it so the farmers aren't going to grow it if they don't know they can sell it uh, and I think we're kind of approaching a very unique time because finally, you know, I think it's in part due to social media and the internet and, and things like that, people are rediscovering this fruit and people want it. There is mm-hmm. a, the demand far outstrips supply right now of, of pawpaw fruit, uh, which means that we actually have the opportunity to do some work on this and help it become a, a larger part of our ag system. We were just talking to someone a couple of weeks ago that visited us, and I had mentioned the Paw Paw Festival in Ohio. They're like, oh, I was there. Like, I went. Like, it mm-hmm. was phenomenal. I don't know how many years that has been running or if that's more of a recent venture, but I think uh, they're on like year 30. Wow. Yeah, I think plus. it's been. Yeah. A while. Has it been that long? And there's a couple other ones I've stumbled across that are also relatively old as far as festivals go. Um, like, in that. 15 to 30 year range. Um, but they're just kind of been small local affairs. We went and to now a- they're getting to be <laughs> people are looking for this kind of stuff yeah. and said, Oh, there's traveling out, uh, like hundreds of miles to go to these things now. More than that. Yeah. We went to a bunch of festivals this year with project Pawpaw. We went to North Carolina state. Um, we went to Ohio festival, York County, Pennsylvania festival and the West Virginia festival. And, at each of those festivals, we'd see people from Canada coming down. Mm. Wow. People would come down yeah. with refrigerated trucks to try and buy fruit 
to bring back to Canada to sell. Yeah. Uh, you know, there's people all over the world want to try this stuff. And we're seeing it. We've noticed locally just it popping up in different types of recipes. I know the Bent Spoon in Princeton does a pawpaw ice cream. Mm-hmm. Uh, Tom and I over the winter were at the Guinness Brewery in Maryland, and they had a pawpaw beer, which was phenomenal, by the way. And, Tom, you've had pawpaw moonshine, right? I've had pawpaw moonshine, yeah. (laughs) Yeah. So there's definitely another market for it beyond just selling it in a store also. There's there's uses which we hadn't even discussed about. Like I wonder if you could make a pawpaw pie or a pawpaw uh, other – yeah, you know other things. It's just I know with it being hard to find and its shelf life limited, you only have so much time to experiment. I would imagine. <laughs> yeah, so so we have uh, we're trying to do a three phased approach here to help the pawpaw out. We've got research on the best way to grow, harvest, and store the fruit. We're doing breeding to make new varieties that still taste great, still grow well, but last a little bit longer. Then we're also doing market development, and a lot of that is finding ways. To extend the shelf life, you know, maybe by preparation or processing and stuff like that. Uh, and so frozen pulp looks like a great option for that. Uh, and that, that can be used in ice cream. If you've ever had a, a mango lassie from an Indian restaurant, pawpaw lassie is wonderful. Um, <laughs> and it makes a great cheesecake, stuff like that. Yeah. People also make lemonade with it. Uh, and people even put it in, in chutneys yeah. and stuff like that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I just saw like a whole bunch of the, the pawpaw cheesecake seem like a really popular thing. At least in the native plant groups this year, but um, no, it's so many delicious, delicious options for for pawpaws. Um, what other like for just people who want to preserve or have these on their shelf a little bit longer at home? Are there any like little tips and tricks that get you an extra day or two? Yeah, so people people say they're ripe when they fall off the tree, and that is true. When they fall off the tree, they're definitely ripe. But if you're trying to if you're trying to get one to a loved one in a different state or something, as I have a personal experience of this, is the best way is you go and you find a pawpaw that is feels like an avocado that will be ripe in next week. So it's just mm-hmm. starting to get soft. Yeah. Uh, and you can you can pick that off the tree and then temperature seems to be the biggest thing. We've done um, storage shelf life experiments this year, uh, just testing them in different different conditions, high ethylene, low ethylene. They don't seem to care about the ethylene like tomatoes or, or bananas do okay. uh temperature is a big thing so keep them cool put them in the fridge right away yeah. don't bruise them uh, and then you get a good chance there if uh if you really if you're inundated with pawpaws as pawpaw growers and lovers often are uh freezing the pulp is by far the best way uh you cannot you can't dehydrate it it's uh it's got fats in the pulp so it, they'll go rancid Ooh, yeah they'll oh, okay. they won't taste good they'll they'll make you feel sick um so Freezing the pulp is, is the number one best way. Just take it out. Don't freeze the seeds. Don't freeze the skin. Just pull the pulp out with a spoon, put it into a bag, and uh, and it'll be good for a year. Wow. wow. Okay. I didn't know that. That's wonderful news. That makes me feel better about harvesting. Yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> so if I remember correctly from our conversations when we first met, I know you're working with supplying pawpaw to farmers to be able to grow this as a crop. But you're also working, if I if I remember correctly, in a means where they have a place to sell it, like to have it in markets or working with, with places that – to kind of create a demand for the farmers that they they grow it. There's some place for it to go. Yeah, we're – you know, we have a heavy emphasis on helping small farmers and, you know, it's actually not a help to small farmers if you give them a crop 
and get them to invest money in growing it, and then they can't sell it. Uh, you can a, a good case study for that is sort of Aronia throughout the Midwest in uh, mm-hmm. what is that the eighties or nineties? People planted acres and acres of it. I think there's a three million pound crop of Aronia berries every year that goes unsold because there's no market for it. Uh, So you have to build the market at the same time you're building the supply or maybe the market even ahead of the supply. And luckily we're sort of entering that phase now where people are, are ready for pawpaws. Yeah. And, and I think you also have to build that supply chain Mm -hmm. uh, structure too, which you're probably going to get at, but it's like the, what does it take you if, if freezing the pulp uh, seems to be the best option? Well, there's a certain amount of labor that goes into that. Mm-hmm. There's the, the sterile packaging and processing and where are you getting all these components from? Um, you can have like a hungry market, but if you don't have a way to get it to them too, then it's, that's just an, another delay in that, that process. And one thing I hadn't thought about till I started doing a little research was the nutritional value which I hadn't even considered, but if if it was correct, I had read that it contained more calcium, potassium, and vitamin C than bananas, apples, or oranges. Not combined, but of each, yeah. yeah. Yeah, I think those are accurate statements. I always do caution people, uh, you know, you don't need to use uh, food as a nutritional supplement. Um, you know, it's, I don't think pawpaws are ever going to become a main food stay in your diet. I think uh, even at their peak, they'll be a treat you have once in a while. I don't think you're going to have a pawpaw every morning. Um, so we're more concerned with making sure that they, they taste really well, really great, yeah. like have good texture, good flavor, good aromas, and, and stuff like that. And I, I think at the end of the day, eating a pawpaw is always going to be better than eating a Twinkie. So. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. What has been, as you approach farmers or 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 people that are, are – interested in making this a field crop what has been some of the resistance like i would think you know again something i hadn't thought about just looking at we walked to the the trees that we had and i know what we harvested and they hadn't been sprayed at all mm-hmm. i would imagine that for a farmer it's got to be a relatively like pesticide free crop i'm not i'm not saying it, it like i don't know in a farm scenario how they have to treat it to get the yield that they need to get but I would imagine it's got to be a little easier than an apple, doing an apple. Yeah, it's it's definitely going to be lower input than, than apples right now uh, or peaches or you know even potatoes. You know, potatoes are the most heavily sprayed crop in the country. Wow. Uh, well, food crop, cotton's a little bit worse, but you know it it's lower input, and I think that's a selling point. But you also have to remember farmers are inherently risk-averse. They're farming on a very tight margin. Mm-hmm. It's hard for them to uh, feel comfortable making making a leap into a crop they haven't used before uh, or that a lot of other people aren't growing. Uh, so what we're really experiencing now is there's sort of, you've got these early adopters and they're willing to to take a risk and plant these. And uh, sometimes it's people who don't, you know, they're not farmers or they, they bought a farm, it's a hobby farm uh, and that works. But we're sort of shifting now into working with farmers who who have farms, you know, active active vegetable farms. And they're looking to put part of their land into something that is a little bit lower input, but still high value, uh, and and that's good. The hard thing, you know, if you're trying to convert row crop acres to to pawpaws, is uh, you have this lag time, right? Mm-hmm. Row crops, you have a yield every year. You have a crop to sell every year. Pawpaws or any tree crop for that matter, 
they have a latency period of, of four to five years before you're getting revenue. And that's sort of the valley of death. So what we also sort of promote is, uh, is slow transitions, putting in rows gradually, or even just uh, still allowing yourself to farm between the rows. You know, you plant your rows of pawpaws, and then you can still have your vegetable rows in between for at least mm-hmm. three or four years uh, before your trees start to shade them out. Um, and I think that helps. I think it just helps that we're thinking about these questions. You know, when you have answers to people asking about, you know, how do I, how do I fund this transition? You know, what can I expect? What do I do with the fruit? Because they're all really good, important questions. Yeah. Uh, just having answers for those goes a long way. Like my first thought was margin. If it's a crop that doesn't exist, what is someone willing to pay for a pawpaw? Now, I, I'm sure when you go to festivals and things like that, you, you get a better idea. But if you were to go into a supermarket, what is the average person – first, they have to, I would think, know what it is mm-hmm. like mm-hmm. to pick it up. Although my wife's probably the exception where she, she picks stuff up that just because she's never seen it before. But if you want to sell a lot of something – the consumer knows what it is, but how much are they willing to pay? Like, is there any research, like margin research? Like, is it profitable for a fu- like? Can they say it? Like, it's taken three or four years, but when when it's a good crop, I'm really bringing in big bucks. So Ohio State did a great study on this, uh, and they they used very conservative numbers of, uh, I think it was a dollar and seventy five cents wholesale okay. pound, uh, to someone. Um, if I could peer into my crystal ball, right. <laughs> I, I could see uh, in the immediate, you know, in the near future, fruit going for seven dollars a pound. Uh, currently, it's going for ten dollars a pound. So, okay, you no, know, we're assuming the supply increase is going to decrease the the cost of it. Uh, but it's really supply dependent because this year there was a crop failure throughout most of uh, most of the Midwest due to a late frost, and uh, the fruit at the Ohio Pawpaw Festival was selling for thirty dollars a pound. Wow! And they sold out in an hour. Well, wow, that's amazing. But also on a on a bad year, so it's yeah. it's maximizing those profits. Mm-hmm. And I don't want to I don't want to give people the wrong idea. You're not going to get thirty dollars for your yeah. fruit. So oh, don't yeah, yeah. you know don't don't buy a hot tub just yet. Yeah. Well, and and another component of that is, and we don't have to dive really into this now. But there's there's different varieties. And do, is there any difference in price based on variety? I know like Susquehanna is one I see a lot of people talk about and say, oh, this is a really, really good one. Where and I've noticed it just the, the seed-grown ones we have uh, or seed-grown trees that are in my parents' backyard, you get a difference in fruit. And as much as I rave about how much I love pawpaws, you get a bad one now. And then. Oh, no, it's not like yeah. they're all the same. Well, I, It's I, from... A seed-grown plant, but from a cultivar, they tend to be more uniform. I I picked a pawpaw uh, to share with some of the people in the office that had never had one, and it was a bad one. And it mm. was like, oh, this is like – tastes like yeasty. Like it, they're like, this isn't what I was expecting yeah. it to taste. And then I taste it. I was like, oh, this isn't – like and then the next one, they're like, oh, OK. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I actually – I they told me that story, and I'm like, well, let me find a good one because I cut them in half like people do and then – I found one that I thought was really good, and I shared that, and I said, this is one I think is good, so now try it. And there's people who are hesitant to try it after your experience. Yeah. yeah. And then uh, one of our office companions was like, oh, my God, this is amazing. I don't know why Fran was trying to kill us the other day. <laughs> but, but I guess my question is, is there a price premium on some of those uh, cultivars or varieties that are known for being better tasting than, than others, or is that – when you go to these festivals, it's kind of 
all across the board, this is what they cost. No, there, there's definitely a variation in it. So Susquehanna, first of all, is a fantastic pawpaw. It's one of my favorite ones. Um, there, there are very high quality fruit quality uh, varieties. And then, you know, like you said, some of the wild ones can have off taste. They can have bitter aftertastes. They can, you know, they can have a very uh, unpleasant texture sometimes. And I, I think that really plays to the importance as we, as we flesh out this value chain and create the market is uh, if someone who's never had a pawpaw buys a pawpaw and pays, you know, a premium for it and has a bad experience, they will never buy one again. So we're really trying to ensure that uh, we have good varieties that are being grown and, and being provided to people. And, and, you know, keep in mind that varieties, at least in pawpaws, some of them just came from the wild. People just found outstanding tasting yeah. ones and growing ones, and that was the variety. So I'm not saying that wild fruit can't be good. In fact, it can be the best fruit in the world, uh, but it can also be bad. And if you don't have experience with those trees and you don't have them characterized, you don't know if you're selling good quality fruit, you know, it, you can you can sell someone an inferior product. So I think the, the named varieties in general go for a higher price just because if they get named, they have higher fruit yeah. quality yep. or better fruit quality. But um, I, I think that's for anyone who is enthusiastic and trying to help pawpaws grow as a as a native food uh just mind your quality because also if you sell overripe pawpaws or pawpaws that that aren't aren't good anymore uh that's also going to hurt the reputation yeah it's and i'll i'll even um i'm i'm thinking about how we're talking about this and uh and i'm just imagining someone out there being like oh when we typically have a podcast we're talking about uh, species plants versus cultivars yep, yep. and and leaning more towards species and, and local ecotype and all this stuff. So this is a little bit different conversation than our listeners are probably used to hearing us, and especially yeah. us be so welcoming talking about it. Yeah. But um, And I'm, I'm just imagining someone out there being like, oh my God, what are they talking about? This is making frankenfoods and all this and that. And I'm, I want, not, not a disclaimer, but just putting it out there that when you go and get an apple from the grocery store, or banana, that is not what they looked like when they were found in, well, an apple in the wild in Kazakhstan. Yeah. Did not look like the apple in the grocery store. It was way smaller, way, way like, knottier. Uh, I have some organic apples, I guess, growing in my backyard because I don't have the time to do the necessary protocols. And they're just these, like, knotty, buggy, and, like, things that they don't look appetizing at all. It's not like that picture-perfect, glossy, red, delicious apple that you've seen so for all fruit production, this is kind of what to have something that's shelf stable, um, not shelf stable, long lasting on the shelf, uh, has that the appealing look, all the components that that get your attention when you go to the farmers market, a grocery store, and all that. This is the components that go in. You need to have mm-hmm. that uniformity, um, and it's also that, important so the customer knows yeah. what to expect when they buy it. If you're like you just said, if they're going picking an overripe or one that is off tasting, they're not going to take get it again. If you go to the grocery store and you get a, a bad apple, you're not eating that variety of apple again because you don't like it. It could have been a one-off where it was a bad one, but your mind is made up. So that's why we're kind of talking about a lot of this stuff the way we're talking about it. And it's still important to note that yeah. even the varieties of pawpaws are only two or three generations of, of selection yeah. away from, from the, the wild ones. And if you... 
know, look at corn, the ancestor of that teosinte, it has been selected for thousands and thousands of years and, you know, is so far from its wild ancestor. So uh, even even these are are more akin to a wild crop than than not. Yeah, it's a that's a, a fun little deep dive for folks is is look up some of the historical versions of the food that we know and love and bananas they don't look like what we have today. <laughs> even even strawberries, like yeah. the original strawberry, like the wild strawberry that some of this stuff got uh, bred into is so small and it, it's in my opinion so much more delicious when you get a really good one, but you're not you don't have the level of consistency always. Mm-hmm. But uh, and that's what it had to be bigger. It had to be redder. It had to be juicier, sweet enough. I mean, uh, shelf stable. It had to be <laughs> eye appealing over over taste appealing a lot of times. But I don't know how far you want to go in this. But like a strawberry, you know, that was an accident. Yeah, you know that yeah. was that was a, a Chilean spy went down to Chile and brought back some plants, uh, and I think it was he brought them back to France, and he had been sent down there, and and he. He chose. He found that he had these big berries because the the Americana strawberries that people had found they're very small berries and they uh, they taste really good. But the the Chilean ones were big, so he he found the biggest plant, buried plants and he brought them back to France and he and he planted them out. Uh, and then the king was like, "These don't make any berries because he had grabbed only female plants because yeah. <laughs> they yeah. picked ones oh, with yeah, the biggest the ones with the big yeah. berry." Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so they sat in a collection for you know. Decades and decades until someone reorganized the collection and put the Chilean strawberries next to the American strawberries. They cross pollinated and created a new species, Fragaria ananasa. Uh, tasted kind of like pineapple, which is why it was named ananasa. And, and that it was that interspecies hybridization that created the strawberry we eat today. So if you think about that in terms of you know food being being always being natural or, or wild, um, you know that that had a lot of human influence in it <laughs> oh yeah yeah well you know and it's it's interesting to be able to see a fruit that maybe is is still pretty close to how it should be you yes. know in, yeah. in the wild producing that way and and like you said you want to have you want to let people have a good experience and we talk about that with native plants in general and when tom and i talk about cultivars we're like if it if it means someone having a first experience is successful and it doesn't turn them off to it because you may only get that one chance. It's not really a bad thing, mm-hmm. you know. Success is always success is always good. <laughs> so, I did have a question for you since we're talking about breeding. I, I'm going to be all over the place. I know <laughs> this, but is there a difference, you know, given its natural range? And I know there's other species as well, which I've never seen the fruit or tasted the fruit, but. Does climate or soil matter for the taste of that pawpaw? Like I have a friend that has a nursery that was formerly a, an apple orchard, and the, the the person retired, and he was a big name in the air, and he was like, ah, you know, I, I really feel that New Jersey apples are a better-tasting apple than what you get in the store from the Pacific Northwest because of climate and soil, but it's not a pretty apple, and people want mm-hmm. a pretty apple, and they're willing to sacrifice look over taste. Is that the case for pawpaw? So uh, it, the crazy thing about this is that there's not a whole lot of data on some of this yeah, stuff. And, really. and the, the preliminary findings or, or the research that has been done uh, by universities or other people, it shows that there is an environmental influence on, on fruit quality. And I, I think we have to better characterize that. So that's why when we're doing our research, we always make sure we do it in mul- multiple environments. So we've got you know one orchard in, in South Jersey, one orchard in, in central New Jersey. Uh, we'll have... 
And as we expand, we're looking to do trials throughout the South, Midwest, and Northeast uh, as we have this, as we build this trialing network to help us find varieties that perform well in certain areas. Uh, and I think that also sort of speaks to what we were talking about before in, in terms of building a sustainable ag system is, is having varieties suited for where they're being produced uh, and, and, and making sure that, that we're letting the plants thrive and keep themselves healthy so that we don't have to spray them. Are the other species of pawpaw, are, are their crops as tasty where it's like that you can find them as well? Like we know triloba mainly because that range is closer to us. I think the other ones are mostly Florida, mm-hmm. if I remember correctly. Yeah, you've got reticulata, uh, obovata, uh, and some other, other things down there. The, the fruits on those are very small, sometimes okay. inedible. Right. Uh, they do have some interesting traits. You know, they've got uh, heat tolerance. They, mm-hmm. They've got uh, a small stature. So okay. Neil Peterson, who is the, the main breeder of, of pawpaws, he, he bred some of the best varieties. Susquehanna, all the ones named after yeah. a river, were bred by Neil Peterson. And um, his, his newest generation of project is, is crossing some of those Florida species with, with triloba to try and make a smaller statured tree as maybe like a backyard tree All right. or something. Yeah. Very, very cool. Yeah. The the other question I had thinking about it is, and we talked about this earlier before we started recording, are there mast years? Are there years that particularly are heavier in fruiting or is it typically consistent? So it's, uh, you know, in the, in the world of, of changing weather patterns, uh, We've been seeing with these late frosts that keep coming, you, they'll often have fruit drop because uh, the blossoms get frozen off because the pawpaw mm-hmm. flowers, they actually flower before they even leaf out usually. So throughout most of the Midwest, there was a late frost that took out most of the crop, which is why there was so little fruit this year. Uh, typically, if you don't have that and you have consistent water throughout the season, then you can expect moderate to high yields each year. They're, they don't really have the mast fruiting okay. thing going on. Um, but once again, you had the late freeze, and we also had a drought here in New Jersey. So I noticed the plantings that we have in northern New Jersey, they really had reduced yield because of that. Uh, dry dry early, early season that reduced fruit fill, and then wet, cool late season, which the stuff that was there really had a hard time ripening. Normally it ripens the second week of September, uh, and they just ripened the third week of October. Wow. Wow. So other than those environmental hazards, are there any other risks to that, like any known pests or anything that anyone has to worry about? Like I know any given condition, if you have weaker plants, there's there's things to worry about. But there's generally nothing that I can think of that that would be an, a concern. Yeah, so there's, there's a few plant diseases that uh, – okay. Can impact pawpaws. You've got phyllosticta, which is like a leaf disease. It's got black dots in the leaves and can uh, put black splotches in the fruit. Um, we've recently seen tobacco ring spot virus sh- shift into a few populations of pawpaws, which uh, is definitely something to be concerned about. So we're upping our our protocols when we're sending plant material out. We're making sure we're sending only clean stuff out. And anyone who's trading scions around should also make sure they're only sending healthy stuff because that's how you get. Uh, plant disease outbreaks, uh, and you've you've got some insect pests too. You know, not not all of them are bad. You know, if you look yeah. at the zebra swallowtail butterfly, that that's yes. an obligate. Uh, <laughs> it, it's obligate food is is pawpaw. So that one doesn't really do 
significant damage to the trees. And honestly, it's pretty. So I'm happy when I see it. Awesome. But if you look at some of the non-native pests like ambrosia beetle or a simina webworm, those can be really devastating to to an orchard and to native populations. And it's just, uh, yeah, getting spread around. So it's 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 keeping the farmers up on those types of issues also or aware of those issues moving forward. Yeah, a lot of it's hygiene. You know, that's that's the best practice for a lot of this stuff. Don't leave dead material in the orchard. You know, just don't bring it into your orchard to begin with. Awesome. Be, so I'm, before I forget, I wrote it down. At some point, because of your background, do you want to have a hazelnut con- conversation about the Rutgers hazelnuts? Uh, You're looking at me like, I don't know. We'll see how much time we have. All right. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> yeah. How about you? You you open to discuss them? I would. I, yeah. I will say I don't think I can speak on behalf of them, but I'm okay. oh, yeah. talk. It about. might be an off air yeah. conversation. Okay. All right. All right. Just throwing it out there, yeah. just in case. I, I wrote it down. Um, what year are you in for, for Project Paw Paw? Like, like for your journey of starting this business? Like, how, how many years in are you? So, this is, uh, we're just past our third year. Okay. Of, of me working on this in a in a large scale way, uh, this is the first time that we've had interactions with with people for a long time. It's just been me doing this, doing stuff, uh, you know, after work uh, and on the weekends. So it's it's starting to take off now. Uh, okay, yeah. I was going to say, how has reception been for the people that you've talked about, and how have how have the farmers been receptive to doing this as a crop? Do you have you just mentioned to me that you just uh, there were a thousand planted at a farm local to us, probably yeah. like five minutes yeah. away, which is ex- extremely exciting for us to see that, knowing that that farmer will have pawpaw available. Like it's, it's now I know you. This is someone that you knew personally, but how has reception been beyond that? It's it's been great. I mean, people contact me almost every day asking to to get a hold and, and be a part of our trialing system. So obviously, we have to be a bit. Um, conservative in how we grow we don't want to get too big big for our means right now so we're focusing on a couple main research farms so the, and those 1000 trees are going to be part of a research farm to help us find the next best variety and then the we'll be selling fruit as well to help uh, build up the value chain um, but like i said people people want to plant these we want to make sure we have the answers to help people have success with it so we've been uh, we've been running experiments on Pawpaw seedling establishment. So we tried different uh, different methods of sheltering the trees and protection, uh, and that was we did that last year. Got some great data that we could share with farmers who are looking to get involved, um, and all that's available on our website projectpawpaw.com. Uh, you can see results from our from our work and our studies, uh, and we also have a great social media presence. Um, oh yeah. yeah, yeah, we've seen that. <laughs> what are your your breeding goals are you looking for selections to keep going are you are you uh active in the breeding process or working with other breeders to to progress this yeah honestly that's that's my uh, i have a lot of hope for the breeding process i'm a plant breeder by training and career uh so i, I think there's so much potential there and we're actually doing selection some of the things we're looking for uh when we're trying to improve shelf life on a on a pawpaw we're looking for things like firm flesh thick skin uh, a color break to yellow. So when the pawpaw is ripe, it turns yellow. And we found wild ones that have that trait already. And that's great because okay. an orchard owner or farmer could say to whoever's helping them, 
pick the yellow ones instead of trying to shake the tree or squeeze it fruit yeah. where you're going to bruise that fruit. You just you can pick them when they're yellow when they're ripe. Also, the yellow is going to look good to someone in a grocery store. Oh yeah. And paired with that, we have to breed for reduced polyphenol oxidase content. Okay. That's the enzyme that makes apples turn brown. Okay. Slices. Right. Yeah. Because uh, the pawpaws, as they ripen, as you guys probably know, they turn brown. And if you've ever seen a bruised banana in the grocery store, people don't buy brown yeah. produce. Yeah. So. <laughs> have you, in your travel, seen successful models of of farmers growing it as a crop or places being sold other than festivals? Yeah, yeah. So there's a great um, Horn Farms down in Pennsylvania mm-hmm. has a great demonstration orchard where they showed sort of a, a pruned pawpaw orchard, and, and they, they sell the fruit there. You've got a few... Uh, Large growers, you got one in in Maryland. Um, he, they they sell wholesale. Okay. You know they they have over a thousand trees there. There is a big grower in Michigan that sells frozen pulp to Whole Foods. Oh, okay. So there's Wonderful. definitely successful models. Yeah, I didn't know that. Yeah, are you going to look in your Whole Foods? Do you go to Whole Foods, Tom? Uh, I've I went to a Whole Foods <laughs> once, and it was actually the the for a donut pop up. Yeah, I and it was I would I don't know I didn't understand it when I was walking through. It's just uh, it's a grocery store, but it's like a different I don't know. There's something when I was walking through, I was just very confused looking for these donuts that weren't actually there. For for me, we we go occasionally. It's just where it's at. It's such a a crowded area. It's Mm -hmm. hard to navigate. Like you know, you're putting in some time going in there so yeah. but if i can find paul paul uh paul concentrate yeah yeah, yeah. totally hey i, I do want to back up because you're talking about some of the breeding that that you're working on with the um that they're more yellow and and maybe don't turn brown like that mm-hmm. is it from an actual um quality standpoint is it is well, i've let me rephrase what I'm trying to say. Does that matter from a quality standpoint, or is it a a perceived quality standpoint where the like if it doesn't look that way, the customer is just not going to go to it, or does it actually improve the quality as well? So the the browning is mostly an aesthetic thing, but the yellow skin is going to be very important for farmers looking to pick yeah. it. Yeah, okay. The, the flesh firmness and skin thickness is going to help with the consumer experience. It's also going to help the fruit last a little bit longer. Yeah, uh, and, and then of course. Flavor is is always key. My uh, grad school research was focused on breeding beets for flavor yeah. and eating quality. So you know, I've the, I've the got beet experience. Mug makes sense now. I was <laughs> like, that's a weird saying to have on a mug. <laughs> I didn't now, even know. Now, I was looking at the corn sticker yeah, on your. Yeah, on now, your now I get it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so I, I'm, I'm trained in uh, you know in flavor analysis and working with consumers to to taste. Taste things and, and breed for for better flavor and eating quality, and I think there's great opportunities to put yeah. that to work in pawpaws. Now that's something I'd rather talk about, friend, is beets. All right, all right. <laughs> so maybe that's what we're saying uh, for later. I'm not a beet fan, so I, I'm uh, interested to hear if there's a if the beet master. Oh yeah, has a uh, has a beet that I'd like. Stay tuned for more of the Native Plants Healthy Planet podcast, presented by Pinelands Nursery. Welcome back to the Native Plants Healthy Planet Podcast, presented by Pinelands Nursery. 
I love that this is something that you're trained in and you're 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 looking to focus it on pawpaw. Yeah. And which I think is a very noble cause. If you were to dream big for your goal, what would you like to see when at at the time that you're looking to retire, you're thinking ahead decades in the future. What is it that you you hoped you would have accomplished with with Project Paul Paul? So we we think a realistic uh, set of goals is to produce a suite of of at least four varieties of pawpaws. Okay. So you've got uh, for your fresh eating ones that have that firm flesh and thicker skin, nice large size, excellent flavor, creamy texture, um, turn yellow when they're ripe, don't brown. And we'd have an early, mid, and late season variety. That way farmers could extend that season. And then we'd also would look to make a processing one that is, is mostly just about size and consistency. That way you could freeze the pulp more easily. I would love that. I would love to see pawpaw during season options in more restaurants like as time goes on. It, it's some way. Now, you were saying you weren't a fan of the pawpaw ice cream. Well, I I don't know if I I don't remember exactly what I said, Fran. <laughs> I'm up to throwing you on the spot. No, I'm, um, you I'm said you spit it out. No, I'm, no, okay. I've had. Uh, you were saying there was something with the mix of the flavor with ice. Yeah. Oh, yes, yes, cream. yeah. So when it might have just been the ice cream that I had that time because I've had it a couple times and it's better. But there's like a and you know how like um, I I don't eat the cereal, so I can't remember the name. There's like those fruit cereals. Like the the one with the rabbit is tricks, tricks, right? Yeah, yeah. And then there's another one, Fruit Loops. Fruit Loops. They have like this like artificially fruit flavor to them, and it's this is it's not an artificial flavor, but I get that same taste with the not when I eat like fresh pawpaw, but when I have it in ice cream, I've detected it a, a handful of times where it gets like this artificial fruity flavor to it. But it's the real flavor, yeah, yeah. so maybe that's what Tricks and Fruit Loops and all of them were basing their flavor profile off of was <laughs> was pawpaws. And so, but it's just like it's something that I taste it, and it's not necessarily an unpleasant flavor. It just reminds me of those cereals, which weren't my favorite cereals. I was a a raisin bran kid, which explains a lot about me. And in, in retrospect, and what was it? Great Grains was another one oh, that yeah. with all the like the mixed dried fruits in. Yeah, I was that. I, that's the cereal I liked, but. Well, I'm, I'm more of a Honey Bunches of Oats yeah. guy. Honey Bunches yeah. of Oats was good too, yeah. yeah. I didn't eat cereal. I can't yeah. even join in the conversation. I'm yeah. sorry. Yeah, and uh, like I think my uh, my like guilty pleasure cereal was Frosted Mini Wheats. That was about as much sugar as we could. <laughs> oh, he's wild. On, on cereal. <laughs> <laughs> I, was, I was really planning on turning up that day. <laughs> so for for funding for this, has that been an issue for you to get started and to get the capital, or do you, is there a way that that people can help you and and donate funding? Is it or or are there other issues with that? Yeah, I mean it's been a big challenge, and if you look at uh, at investment in sustainable crops over the past fifty years, it's been seriously neglected, and that's mostly because our current funding structures don't work for projects that have long time frames. Uh, you know, the deliverables on a lot of these grants are in terms of years, and sometimes plant breeding of a tree can take decades. Uh, so it's this, like, short-term emphasis uh, that is really preventing us from making long-term investments. And I think that's going to be damaging because time is time may be money, but money is not time. And I really foresee a future where people realize we need 
to invest in, in sustainable, locally adapted crops. And at that point, they'll find money for it. But the research is still going to take time. So it, we have to start this work now. So the way we've been doing it is, is crowdfunded. Okay. You know, we've been going to festivals and farmers markets, and we have an online store at projectpawpaw.com. And all of the sales from those that we've sold seedlings and T-shirts and Hawaiian shirts and everything else, and uh, all those proceeds go directly into funding research and breeding. Uh, and, and mostly right now it's establishing these breeding orchards. And you can even sponsor a tree on our website. Oh, wow. Um, and that's been great. You know, we've, We've had a we've made a lot of great connections. People have been receptive to it, uh, and and it's nice because it's it's sort of a pawpaws for the people by the people type thing. It's there's no corporate interest in it, which which wow. gives us a lot of freedom and agility as we work on these goals, just to be farmer and consumer and sustainability focused. And this is someone someone can go to your website and 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 support you that way. Yeah, I think yeah. I'm, I'm on the website right now. I'm, I'm putting together Are you a, cart. a Hawaiian <laughs> shirt. I have a Hawaiian <laughs> shirt in the cart. Yeah. yeah. That's awesome. I may get myself one also. I'll have to take a look. To me, I think the timing couldn't be more perfect. Like I try to look at native plants in sense of like the stock market and right now the market's hot and that's when you invest. So it I think it's perfect timing five years ago may have been a little too early and and five years from now may be a little too late but i think you're hitting it like with good interest with the momentum rolling your direction and i i really hope that works in your favor i wish i could say that was by by plan you know this is gonna happen <laughs> now regardless and i think it just happens to be exactly the right time i i am finding it so interesting just your background and and your take on this and and then with with talking about beats i want to talk about kind of like not just paul paul what sparked your interest in this and had you move forward with the career path that that you're in as it all like where is where is those things like how did it lead you to going to college for this yeah i so i grew up uh family garden center and nursery uh, that's that's how we started off. Um, so I liked plants, and I saw in my neighborhood up in northern New Jersey there were a lot of dairy farms, and I actually caught the tail end of sort of the dairy farm die off. I watched family farms, people I went to school with, their families lose farms that they had had in their in their family for for generations, uh, and I, I wanted to do something about that. So I entered college uh, intending to do agricultural engineering because I figured okay. you know these these less popular fruit and nut crops that we really were hindered by lack of equipment. And I had kind of oversimplified the issue to that. Uh, and it wasn't until I started working in the Rutgers hazelnut breeding program uh, where I, I sort of saw the potential that plant breeding has to improve things. We were breeding European hazelnuts for resistance to the Eastern filbert blight uh, in that lab. And I, I was really seeing the introduction of a new crop for farmers. And I said, I can't believe we can do this in a lifetime. You know, it, felt like something that should take generations or, you know, eons, but it was all feasible. And then, then I, like I said, I realized that pawpaws could have the same thing, but in some ways they're an even better candidate because they didn't need to, we didn't need to make them taste good. We didn't need to make them grow well. We just needed to make them last a little longer or find ways to get the fruit to people. Uh, and on top of that, there was this, they were fervent masses like the people going to these festivals the ohio festival i think gets thirteen thousand people in a weekend mm -hmm. 
That's amazing. Yeah. That, that blows my mind. People are people want these. They love them, and, and they want to see it succeed. And that is the sort of push and momentum you need to have an ambitious, you know, blue sky project like this. Hope to see some success. Is you need to have the support of of people and and early adopters, and you need to be uh, very intentional with how you how you do things. Yeah, uh, I think it's it's only today with the environment or you know the technology and and the social media environment that we have where this is possible and it's so cool to be a part of something that's that's going to be way bigger than myself i'm excited for you i really am yeah. and that's i i mentioned to you beforehand a lot of the people that work here want to meet you because they're so excited about what you're doing that they want to talk to you about it which is fantastic you know it's i'm 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 excited for you it's what would you say are some of the I, and you may have already mentioned a lot of these what would be your biggest obstacle moving forward with this is it time is it so luckily we're able to accelerate you know we've got technology now where we can speed up the time and we've i've uh, a lot of my early work was invested in in finding ways to accelerate the life cycle of the pawpaw okay. that way we could get the generations and we need um the biggest obstacle really is funding and just having enough money to plant the trees so when you're doing plant breeding you're picking one tree that has one trait say the firm flesh and one tree that has thick skin and you're letting them pollinate each other then you're gathering those seeds and planting them out in the field we plant hundreds or a thousand of these trees then you have to grow each one to maturity look through the fruit and find the one that has both the firm flesh and the thick skin okay so it takes time but and it takes trees like a lot of trees (laughs) so uh you know the biggest issue that we've had and the thing that's hindered most other people who have tried to do this in the past is they haven't had the population size needed, which is on the order of thousands of trees planted. Uh, and even the universities don't have space to be doing this consistently. Uh, and, and that's what I got. I've got the training. I've got the enthusiasm. Uh, but most importantly, I have the time. Most people getting into this, you know, a lot of people are getting into this after retirement or, or later in life, and they, or they don't have the training, or if they do have the training, they go and they work a job, and they don't never get to dedicate time to this. But I feel like with that combination, we can actually see progress in this, not just in a lifetime, but but quickly. Yeah, I, I, the, one of the things that just struck me was um, you're talking about the time, and uh, there's a uh, I don't think I've told this story on the podcast before. My brother is. Um, is friends with a guy named Ted. Do you know, have you met Ted? Ted? Denecki, yeah. yeah, Ted Denecki. <laughs> I'm going to his house later. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And uh, I think he's like 76 now and, and he's just like a really avid. How does everyone know Ted? Well, <laughs> it's hard. To, once you run into Ted, it's hard to miss him. All right. But um, yeah, he's just like an avid, avid nut breeder. And, uh, and, but he kind of just does it as a passion. He's not really doing it to make money off of it. But I think about Ted because he's in his, mid to late seventies. And I'm like, Oh, some of the stuff he's doing now, he's never gonna, well, he, I guess he could, there's advances in modern medicine, but there's a good chance. He's not going to see the outcomes of, um, that, but yeah, he's a real character. Pawpaw it's, breeding. Yeah. It, the history of that is riddled with this is with people, uh, getting entranced with them later in life, doing a big collection, getting some great stuff, maybe doing some crosses. And then no one wants to pick up, their work after they're gone. Their kids aren't interested. 
Uh, and that's where Neil Peterson got his varieties from, was from the Blandy Experiment Station. That was an experiment station that had gone decrepit, and he found seedlings growing in hedgerows there. Uh, and then most recently, Jerry Lehman in Indiana is a, a pawpaw. He was a pawpaw collector and, and breeder, and a lot of our parent material is coming out of his orchard, crosses that he made shortly before he died. Okay. Uh, and and we're just going through and trying to categorize and find that material before it's lost or, or sold or you know mowed down to build a house or something. Uh, and we're really grateful to be standing on the shoulders of giants. I guess that's what people always say plant breeding is. So it, you know, we're we're finding work that people have been doing, and we're trying to make sure we're doing it in a really well documented way, uh, and sort of within the context of Project Pawpaw, where there will be continuity and people can can take it on and continue the process. Awesome. Yeah. You know, because it's interesting. Like you mentioned, Ted. Like I was saying, I'm like, does he have any kids? Like, is this going to when when he when he passes? Does he have anyone to to share this? information with you know i don't i don't know all that i know a lot of what he's passing is to my brother um just my brother's really interested in it and when we went out to chicago he had seen ted the day before and came out got on the plane with pockets full of nuts yeah i have nuts in my car from (laughs) ted (laughs) and was just like hand it like we're at other nurseries and he's reaching in his his pockets and saying here's some yeah here's some but uh but um Oh, when and when we got back, uh, when we dropped you off, Fran, okay. and uh, Ted called my brother, and he's like yelling him at him on the phone because I guess the it's like time to do the pecan harvest or pecan harvest, however you say it, and uh, and he's like, my brother literally was. We got home six thirty on Thursday night. He's leaving for his honeymoon early to Saturday Japan. morning, so he's home for Friday. He's got all this stuff to do. He's gone for two weeks after this. All this stuff to do in the meantime, planning out his like all the his crew's schedule for the next two weeks so they can do stuff. And Ted's yelling out of phone. He's like, "If you want any pecans, you need to get over here now. <laughs> We're harvesting tomorrow because they'll disappear in like two days." <laughs> and Steve is like, "Can't you just collect some and give me some after? Like, why do I have to go?" <laughs> do you want to share his well, nickname? Yeah, so my <laughs> <laughs> this is what I was getting at before, but I've never shared it on the podcast. But my brother calls him uh, Big Nuts Ted, and um, because all he does is he cares about the size of the nuts. I don't. Does, he probably cares about other things too. But all I hear him talking about is like, oh, but how big is the nuts? How big are the nuts of that tree? He doesn't really talk about the flavor and all that kind of stuff as much. It's always size, but. uh Look, yeah. they're massive. I don't know if you've ever yeah. seen these. <laughs> He's got some. So they're like billiard ball sized hickory nuts. Yeah, <laughs> they're like it really is impressive if you've seen yeah. a hickory nut. Yeah. It's just the size of some of these these hickans and all the stuff he's. Is crossing. anyone tapping uh, that knowledge? Like, is he working with like, or is this just something that he's doing in his property? And it's just, I, I think he signed on with a land trust. Okay, to, yeah, to take ownership of the property right. after. Oh, yeah. awesome! But yeah, he. Uh, but we'll run into Ted at community days and. He's the last. The last time I saw him, or was I it say Steve's last time wedding? I saw him, I saw him at Steve's wedding too. He probably had a pocket. I heard he was there, dan- but I, I was heard busy. he was. A he was, yeah. Machine. He was cutting a rug at my brother's <laughs> wedding. But um, last year I saw him at a community day, and he's walking around with this little. I saw him from a distance. I'm like, I'm pretty sure that's Ted. And as I get closer, he's walking around with this little like uh, clamshell container, and 
like just and then I get closer. I'm like, I was full of all these nuts, and he was just talking to whoever would listen. <laughs> like, my wife had not met Ted at that point. I'm like, oh, there's Ted again, showing people his nuts, and. <laughs> But he's just really pat. That's his thing. Is he? I don't Which know what his awesome. career was before him, but that's his passion. Is is big nuts? So that's why I call him Big Nuts Ted. It's, All right, yeah. now's your opportunity. Did you really want to talk beats? I kind of do. Yeah, because okay. um, I've I've never met anyone really like passionate about beats. Uh, I know a lot of people who like beats. A lot of people who don't like beats. I'm in the camp. Though I don't like beats, and I feel like beats have always been, like, pushed on me. And I'm like, is there something wrong with me that I don't like beats? But there's just, like, it's not the upfront flavor. There's some that are bad from the start to finish. There's some I've had that are really good, and I'm like, oh, maybe I like beats. And then it just, there's a switch that flips, and I'm like, I don't like beats. You don't like beats because they taste like dirt. They taste like dirt and, like, kind of irony and... and So that that earthy flavor is from a compound called geosmin, Latin earth odor. Uh, it's the same molecule that makes the smell after a rainstorm or the smell of freshly oh, dug soil. Okay. Yeah. So it's yeah. naturally that's produ- produced by Streptomyces bacteria living in the soil. Uh, after a rainstorm, they release that. Uh, and humans and most mammals actually are very sensitive to it. Uh, camels can smell it for miles and miles. They use it to find oases to drink water. Oh, wow. But humans associate it with uh, tainted water, right? If, you, if your okay. water smells yeah. like that, you say, oh, I don't want to drink this. Now, we were interested in beets because they're, they're actually making it. The previous grad students before me proved that the beets were making that compound. And we said, why would they do that? You know, is it some sort of defense or something? And not only did the beets make it, but there was variation in different beet varieties with how much there was. Yeah. And you could select upon that. And after multiple generations, we were able to select beets that had lower levels of that. Uh, and we're not trying to, you know, change all the beets. What we're doing is... We called it like a gateway beet, right? If you <laughs> yeah. don't like, oh, yeah. you don't like the earthy flavor, you know, try these beets, and they have less of that. And then, you know, maybe you might learn to love it because it's it's a healthy vegetable. You know, lots of antioxidants, great great pigments. It's a it's a beautiful vegetable, uh, and it, it's a, once again another nice crop for for small farmers. It can be it's pretty easy to grow beets. Um, and we, we did that, and over multiple generations, you know, if you, if you go to Whole Foods, look up Badger Flame Beet. They have those okay. available for sale. That's a low geosmin uh, beet. It's also it's a different shape. It's kind of long, like a sweet potato. Yeah. And it's oh, got wow. cool yeah. patterns on the inside. It's great as a fresh eating beet. You don't even have to cook it. Yeah, you can yeah. cut it into wow. sticks and okay. eat it. Uh, you can cook it as well, just like a regular beet. You can put it on a salad with some goat cheese. Fantastic. Yeah. Awesome. Now my and wife, that's what I need. I need a beat that I can use as my gateway beat because I want to like beets. Mm-hmm. I there's something appealing to them. Probably the color, but it's a. Uh, it's gotten to a point where people mix them into salads, and I'm like I can't. I can't even eat the salad because they've been tainted with beets. <laughs> and uh, now I do yeah. like beets. I'm a fan of that. But my wife, it, it, you know, culture wise, being from Poland, like that was a staple of their diet. Mm-hmm. So she's. We always have beets in the house, it seems, whether they're pickled or, or whatever. I, there's a big cultural component, right? Like if you grew up and your, your grandma made borscht or something, yeah, you know, yeah. you have an emotional attachment. But I also personally believe there's probably some variation between people and how strongly you can taste that. And, yeah. you know, I, yeah. I feel like some people... Kind of like the cilantro thing mm-hmm. where it's either soap or delicious. Yeah, and it may not be, you know, so dichotomous like yeah. that. Yeah. You know, it might might be more of a, oh, I really taste this earthiness and someone else doesn't. Um, and, yeah, I, 
Well, ultimately, we're all about providing options to people. You know, we're not trying to replace all the beats with non-earthy beats. We're trying to give, uh, you know, a, a very large section of consumers access to a healthy vegetable. And uh, once again, eating a beet is always going to be better than eating a Twinkie. So. Yeah. <laughs> well, the cilantro, like Agatha and I both like cilantro. But if you ask Kelsey in her office, she says they, they taste like stink bug. She goes, they yeah, taste like stink that. bug smell. Yeah, and she can't get. Yeah, she can't get near it. Yeah. I'm not, and I'm I'm one of the people that's kind of like in the middle. A little bit of cilantro is okay. A lot of cilantro is I get too much of that flavor, and it's it's no good to me. I just have a very sensitive palate. It's what I'm yeah, finding. Yeah. finding <laughs> this but, has been an incredible conversation. Oh yeah. I can't yeah. tell you how thrilled well, I am to have you here in person. I do have another question for you. And what's the native range of like? Where did beets come from? Beets, yeah, beets come from uh, the rocky shores of the Mediterranean. Okay, uh, and that—that's where they were domesticated. If you look up Beta meridima, that's the wild beet ancestor, and it's just this spindly thing with a very small root. And once again, you can see the power of plant breeding and, and continued selection as they selected for a swollen uh, hypocotyl. That's actually what it is. It's not a root. Okay, it's a swollen hypocotyl, and the beet grew from the base um, over you know thousands of years. Interesting. Awesome. Yeah. Did, did you have anyone as you got into this that influenced you or that you looked up to in the industry that was doing work that you're like, I, I really, you know, that you kind of wanted to lead in their or, or follow in their footsteps? Yeah. You know, when I first got into uh, Pawpaws, I emailed Neil Peterson like as a kid and I was like, I think you're so cool. And he, he's like, this is probably the first fan mail I've ever gotten. <laughs> um, <laughs> so it was really uh, surreal to then, you know, go through all this training and really have this uh, circuitous path and then end up, I got breakfast with him about a month ago. And then he, awesome. we went to his breeding orchard and, and went through the material. And it was uh, great to be kind of like an equal with him and, you know, be continuing on with his work and, and working with him. Uh, and that was great. And of course, there's plenty of great folks out at uh, Kentucky State, Ohio State, uh, everyone else down at NC State, people working with pawpaws. Um, and it's a small community, as you guys know. You know, once you, you know, once you know Tadzanaki, right? Like, yeah. Oh, yeah. you know yeah. everyone. Like Cliff England in Kentucky has become a great friend of mine. He has a big nut and uh, and fruit orchard, and he collects all sorts of crazy, crazy fruit and nut trees. So. It's been cool meeting the people. That's been an unexpected like, joy of this. Have, have you gotten yeah. to cross paths with Samuel Thayer at all? Uh, I I have never met him, but I okay. I know who he is. Okay. And, yeah, and he's a Wisconsin. He's in the, yeah. Wisconsin. Yep. Yeah. One of these days. I was just yeah. curious because I was thinking of his. Tom has bought fruit, fruit, uh, fruit leather, fruit leather from him. Was it chokeberry or was it viburnum uh, trilobum? I was highbush cranberry. Okay, and. No, and then it was viburnum trilobum, I think. Yeah. And then um, I thought it was chokeberry was the other one. I think so, yeah. yeah. I, I, I thought remember. that was fascinating about the, the aronia that you were saying with the unused. You know, and I, I, it made me start thinking of other crops like Sambucus, like how – like that's a buzzword right now. But where mm-hmm. is most of that being produced? Yeah. And – and as their fields out there just sitting untouched. I, I know of a few. <laughs> <laughs> this might be a good time to say that uh, I'm, I just took a job with the Savannah Institute out in the Midwest. Uh, and there I'll be the breeding operations manager breeding 
chestnuts, hazelnuts, mulberries, persimmons, black currants, and elderberries. Oh, wow. Uh, all for agroforestry systems. So, yeah. yeah, we're getting deeply, I'm getting deeply acquainted with, with those crops and the so markets both, around them. Both native and non-native mm-hmm. species. So, like persimmon, you'd be doing Asian persimmon. And no, they're doing no, American the persimmon. American persimmon? Okay. Yep. Trying about, to cold-hardy American. How about black currant? Because I know there's currants in the United States, but also Europe. Like, my wife actually has a, a, a concentrate black currant concentrate in our freezer. Yeah. So, I mean, we could do a whole podcast about black currant, right? And the, the ribes uh, quarantine from the white pine blister rust. <laughs> yes, <but. yeah. laughs> we, we had uh, someone on from uh, Perry Sassnet from Glacier uh, National, National Park, Park yeah. and she was talking about ripping out all the plants. Yeah. Uh, you know, the process that happened there. So, so. As, as we try and use the wild, uh, you know, American ones that are out there, uh, you have to make sure everything you breed has resistance to the white pine blister mm-hmm. rust so that's coming from material that was bred in canada and we're crossing it into american yeah, yeah. very cool i love these conversations oh yeah because <laughs> i know nothing about it and you're extremely intelligent and knowledgeable about it and i'm like i'm like oh i could ask questions all day <laughs> on this yeah yeah and i think uh well should i want to say yeah i might save this for my final thought friend because we still okay. do that right at the end yeah yeah, yeah we still do so that. you want right, to save no, it or you no, want to no, bring no. it up I better write it down. All so right, I write it down, it and I'll ask. So I, it might be gone already. Just looking at timing, we should probably get to the the last question, um, which it's always the same question, and it's a simple question, but sometimes the most difficult question. And I'm really interested, given our conversations, what your answer will, will be. But what is your favorite native plant? Ooh. So my favorite native plant, um, I'm actually going to go with the American groundnut. Apios oh. Americana. Okay, um, that's another one of these things that uh, I think I'm I'm ahead of the curve on. You know, maybe maybe the next generation is going to be the one to do something with this, but I think that's really cool. That it for those of you who don't know, it's sort of a, a vining. I think it's a legume, um, and it it produces these tubers underground that are nutty and kind of like a potato, nutty and starchy. And mm-hmm. I think uh, those could be a really cool crop. Like I said, potatoes are the most sprayed crop wow. in the United States. Uh, they're often sprayed weekly or bi-weekly with, with some noxious stuff. So, you know, having an American groundnut to offset some of that production uh, could be healthier for people, healthier for the planet. Uh, and also, it's just a pretty plant. You know, I don't know that one. I don't yeah. know that one. And I'm that- just reading from uh, North Carolina State that it's a uh, cultivated food crop in Japan. Really? So, yeah. Wow. Interesting. They're ahead of the curve. <laughs> yeah, yeah, they got the, it. So for the chestnuts and the work that you're going to be doing, American chestnut, or is it? Uh, they're focusing on Chinese chestnut. Chinese chestnut. Yeah. Okay. We had a inv- very interesting. I'm sure that's not for the podcast, but a very interesting conversation about American chestnuts last week in Chicago. Oh yeah, yeah. yeah. That one's. I'll we'll probably I'll, keep that one off air yeah, until off air. something <laughs> comes of it. I'll I'll, so. I'll share that with you. Yeah, off, yeah. Off the thing or uh, when when we can eventually do it, I'll share it as a secret yeah, on, the, yeah. on the Buzz episode. But this is the part of the podcast where we we each take a turn doing a final thought. We throw it over to you first, and we we just give you the floor. You can use the time however you want. If you'd like to summarize or promote something. We're obviously going to put all of your uh, links, important links in the show notes to make sure people know how to find you. But you can uh, talk about any work that you're doing, any uh, any way that you want to use it, or we just hand you the floor. It's yours. So Amazing. 
one thing I wanted to bring up because I, you know, I know the listener base of this podcast is probably somewhat apprehensive to someone trying to use uh, a native plant in an agriculture uh, situation. You know, I feel like people often view them uh, as at ends with each other or at odds with each other. Um, I'd say there's a m- multiple ways to do conservation, right? So if you're looking at conservation by addition, uh, you know, you're we're going to be providing a fruit to to people, a native fruit that's going to be increasing the awareness of native fruits and the interest in native fruits. Um, it's going to be helping small farmers to stay economically viable and provide uh, jobs and income in their communities. And it's going to be, uh, you know, a, a wonderful, valuable addition that's delicious and fun. But what it really is, is it's conservation by subtraction. Because you're not, typically, we're not looking at people planting pawpaws as cutting down forests to plant pawpaws. What they're doing is they're displacing row crops. They're displacing corn and soy, displacing things that are higher input or, or more damaging to the land with this crop. And and what that's doing is it's it's locking carbon in the roots. It's preventing soil erosion as you don't have to till. It's slowing down wind and prevent, preventing soil erosion like that. It's providing habitat and ecosystem services for uh, insects and small animals. Uh, and it, it's also helping democratize the pawpaw. Those of us who have had the pleasure of going out into the woods and, and picking a pawpaw uh, know how much fun it is. But there's a vast majority at this point of people in the country who do not have access to land or do not have access to public land, or do, not, do not have access to land in which pawpaws have grown because they have been extirpated from their natural habitat. And it is giving people the opportunity to have this fruit without going out into the wild and over-foraging from patches that are providing valuable ecosystem services to animals and, and, and uh, other you know, creatures, it, it's giving them access to this fruit. And it's also offsetting one of the biggest uh, problems we have in our modern food system, which is the globalization of our food system. You know, if, if you go through the life cycle of a banana, right, it's a fruit grown in a monoculture on stolen land that was stolen by a giant corporation and harvested from exploited labor sources that originated from the land from which they had their land stolen, which is then packed onto a cargo ship, shipped across the entire world, and sold as a loss leader in a grocery store for 40% of it to be thrown out. Uh, And there are some serious problems with that, and we're trying to address just a little bit. We don't think pawpaws are going to be the answer to this, but we'd rather be part of the solution than part of the problem. Man, no, that no. was so well. Yeah, that was well, well, well I was going to say, add big banana to the list of, <laughs> of organizations that have come after us. But, you know, uh, and I, I wish yeah. we had thought about foraging and over foraging just to have as mm-hmm. a discussion earlier, yep. just because, you know, we talk about this with ramps as they get popular mm-hmm. and all of a sudden, even if you're trying to, Tom mentions all the time, even you're trying to harvest. Uh, sustainably, you don't know who's there before you and who's oh, yeah. there after you. Yeah. So if there's 10 and you're like, I'm only going to take two, how do you know that five more people yeah. aren't? I mean, all, that's, mm-hmm. all that happens is uh, I think the example I use with morel mushrooms is like someone walks up to a patch and finds 100 morel mushrooms and said, oh, I don't want to take too many, so I'm only going to take take 10 or 20. And then the next person comes along and takes another twenty percent, and then and then you come up and the last person's like so excited because they found one morel mushroom, like oh I found a morel, but they didn't realize that there was 
a hundred there just a few days before or even hours before. But if it's more so. accessible, you can have one in your property. You yeah. could go to the store and buy it. Yeah. Maybe oh, yeah. it helps protect all of our natural resources also as a result of this, yeah. which is wonderful. And, you know, Robin Wall Kimmerer in Braiding Sweetgrass uh, shares a bit of indigenous wisdom there, which is you never pick the first one you find ever, you know, yeah, because that ensures that when you find a second one, there's at least going to be some left. Yep. Uh, and that applies for yep. ramps and pawpaws and morels, anything else. Oh, yeah. You know, never pick the first one you find. No, that's, yeah. a, that's a perfect, perfect person to quote for that. Yeah, oh, yeah. Tom, no, it want- makes a lot of sense. Yeah. Um, you, you basically said a lot of what I was going to say is uh, a lot of this comes down to, and why we've done a, done a lot of uh, breeding when it comes to food crops, is just uh, food sustainability and, and I don't want to necessarily say equity, but uh, availability. We have a system now that Sam Thayer talked about a lot on our podcast where it's just very driven, like the, the foods we know and love all were driven by one group of people. And now they're growing across the world. Um, and they tend to be not in the U.S., tend to be non-native fruits and vegetables and just crops of all kinds uh, that dominate the landscape. We saw it when we were driving through Illinois last week. Uh, Corn as far as the oh eye can gosh. see. Yeah. yeah, that was unbelievable. Um, and it's really cool to see that kind of process happening with a native fruit and uh, and I think most of our listeners probably get it. They're yeah. like, "Oh yeah, this is really cool to use a native fruit and kind of make it widely acceptable." I'm, the the person I imagined earlier is probably a really really small. Maybe they don't even listen to this, but there's a small percentage of of people who are into native plants who would think that way. But um, I think yeah, it's for people to have access to it. We're at a point in the system where there's so many. Let me back up. There's so many great native plants that can also be foods out there. American groundnut didn't even know it existed, but it's something yeah. that was like really important to uh, to Native Americans and and probably early settlers as a food source. And it's kind of disappeared from our our uh, mentality as something that we can eat um, because it's been replaced by corn and soy and well, I, the same thing. All that kind of stuff. Kind of said that with hickory yeah. oil. He's like, there's like not great records, but there's you talk and hickory oil is a fantastic product yeah. that just doesn't get yeah doesn't get made. But um, we've lost some of that, and we're at a point now where we can't go back to everyone has their own little garden or foraging spot. It just doesn't exist, and there's no way we can get back to there from where we are now, um, at least in a reasonable amount of time. So I think doing stuff like this brings back some of that availability equity. You don't need to go and plant and breed pawpaw trees in your backyard or on your, your apartment balcony to have access to this. It's going to be able to happen. I don't say what's the right word. I was going to say organically naturally, but those aren't really the right word for what I'm looking for, but it's, it, you're doing something about that, I guess, so that it, it potentially can be available to, to the masses. So, yeah. Awesome. Yeah, Fantastic awesome. thought. I was just thinking when you mentioned in your final thought that some of our listeners may not be for a native plant for agriculture. And it really never even – I never thought of it in a bad way, yeah. which I guess is like 
I have no issues. If that's the gateway, like not even a selection being a gateway for someone into Paw Paw, but a Paw Paw in a store is someone's gateway into learning about the heritage of our nat- native plants and, and natural heritage. I'm all for it regardless. Yeah. And I, I think if anything, raising the awareness and and making this accessible is a win-win for everybody. And I, I don't see it not not being a good oh, thing. Oh, yeah. I'm, so, I'm, and I guess that's kind of what I was getting at, Fran, was with what I was saying is wouldn't it be awesome to have like a pawpaw and American groundnut farm and like yeah. co-crop that with other things and, and have some other stuff that's working together and being able then, even a small farm, being able to feed hundreds of people off of what you did that couldn't have done that on their own. I could see a... And it's, hard. Said, it's a it's a cloudy picture. It's a way out there, but, but I could see that happening at some point. And, and but being, it's not going to happen without this. You're not going to get people invested in it as a consumer without this kind of research to make sure that you have a fruit that looks pretty, tastes great, is a little more shelf stable, um, and that's super important. I'm just look thinking is something sustainable that that requires less input. I'm thinking soil health. Just the health of yeah. everything it, around us. The whole, not... the whole you're still going to have the the wildlife farmer conflict that mm-hmm. exists today. I... But is it now you're inviting in at least the the insect population to an extent? Yeah. Um, there's still going to be like at least from pollination standpoint, that's going to be that's... welcome instead of well, that's something actually... where it's like, well, we just doesn't help us to so get rid of them all. That's a good question. Is there is because obviously pawpaw are. are native food to so much of our native wildlife how does that factor in with farmers setting up crops is there competition when the pawpaws are ripe are they finding or or are they having to put up some kind of like exclosure to protect i i think you've got um the beauty of biological limitations right like an animal's stomach is only so big and pawpaws (laughs) fruit so heavily that i I think the paw the raccoons and possums and turtles can eat to their heart's content and there still will be plenty left. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, That's kind of how I could see it too is, and too, if you're finding something where you have for human consumption, it's actually picked off the tree where most of the Mm -hmm. stuff that animals are going to consume is going to be fruit drop. And there's just, there's going, it's a part of agriculture where you have those, uh, stuff that just isn't shelf ready. Yeah. So you're letting it go. And in a lot of cases it's, with, with peppers and cantaloupes and watermelon, it's gleaned and then donated to, to food banks or just left in the field to rot. Mm-hmm. So now you have something where it's could be consumed by, I, or I think the people who would be doing this would be welcoming in that regard to an extent. So, so given, I, I just keep coming up with more questions. Yeah. I know we just yeah. did our final thoughts, but now that there's a market and there's people consuming, and there's a need to keep growing this industry too. How are people recycling their seed? <laughs> well, we say the best thing you could do is uh, just make sure you put your seeds somewhere they could grow. You know, never throw them out okay. if you get a fruit. Um, for us, the seed at this point is more valuable than the fruit, uh, just because we're trying to increase the number of trees. We're trying to grow out our orchards, and our, our seeds are typically from very intentional crosses between the two uh, two trees. But um, yeah, seeds seeds make more trees, but they also make great jewelry and things like that. Mm-hmm. Uh, they were carried as pocket pieces by indigenous people for 
for you know hundreds of years, thousands of years. Um, and you don't want to understate the significance of this fruit to indigenous people and you know the role that it played as a as a food source and you know as a and the evidence that we have for indigenous people spreading this around and selecting ones that uh, had higher fruit quality you know they they started this process a long time ago it, it's interesting one of the things that we had looked at like if you look at bonap and you see its natural uh, range we had a book was it native plants in new jersey I think so. That yeah. was showing it native to New Jersey, all up and down the Delaware River in Burlington County. Which you're thinking, oh, no, that's probably not native. That's where it was planted or or disposed of for cord- food corridors mm-hmm. as you're traveling. Which which makes perfect sense. Not that any of them are there now. But. I mean, from a conservation or you know evolutionary biology standpoint, it is so much easier for a fall bearing fruit or nut to move south than it is to move north because mm-hmm. in the Fall, things are migrating south, yeah. and that's what moves things long distances. A large seed like a pawpaw is not being carried by birds. It's being carried by animals in their stomach. Mm-hmm. So it moves very slowly, which is why even though New Jersey is a uh, perfectly suitable habitat, honestly, it's, it's fantastic habitat. You don't see a whole lot of wild populations here because a lot of this land was cleared. Yeah. It's slow to move back. But when you look at you know wild populations and you see these these uh like you said, the food corridors. Yeah. See, the rivers have pawpaws spread all up through the northern Midwest. And that's pretty strong evidence of, of human intervention and, mm-hmm. and, and spreading. Yeah. Awesome. Yeah. Awesome. I think that just about does it. What do you think, Tom? Yeah, I – well, I – I could keep talking. I think we could no. go a lot, yeah. a lot longer. I'm but. just looking. I'm like, we're <laughs> yeah. just about at an hour now. Yeah, yeah. But yeah, so that's going to wrap us up for today. Thank you for joining us. We hope you enjoyed listening to Adam D'Angelo from the Project Pawpaw. Uh, for more information, you can visit his website, which is www.projectpawpaw.com. Uh, there's all kinds of cool stuff up there. I was being serious when I said I have a cart going of uh, uh, what do I have in there right now? A couple T-shirts, uh, actually multi- a lot of T-shirts, uh, the Hawaiian shirt, some uh, pawpaw seed earrings, uh, a couple hats, crew neck sweatshirts. Oh, awesome. There's all kinds of stuff Very that cool. you can get on there. So, And that's all going to a good cause and also making you look trendy. So, um I left my screen that had my script on it, so I don't remember what I said next. You're oh, yeah. everyone. Thank you, everyone, for listening to Native Plants Healthy Planet presented by Pylons Nursery. Uh, we're going to give a big thank you to the egocentric plastic men for contributing our theme music. Wouldn't be the same without it. Make sure you stream or uh, buy their music wherever you consume music. Thank you to Dave Bennett for our Native Plant Anthem. You can follow us on Twitter at Pineland Nursery, Facebook at Pinelands Nursery NJ, Instagram at Native Plants underscore Healthy Planet, and YouTube at Pinelands Nursery. Don't forget about the question and comment line. You can call us at 215-346-6189. I will repeat that, 215-346-6189. Ask a question or leave a comment. We'll do our best to play it on a future episode of The Buzz. And thank you to all the new members of the Native Plants Healthy Planet Facebook group. Uh, it just keeps growing and getting kinder. I don't know if that's even possible, yeah. but yeah. it does. Yeah, I I don't think I've seen many, if any, like negative interactions in there. No, and no. Uh, I feel I feel good about yeah. that. Yeah. Oh, me too. Because I've proud. seen it get really bad elsewhere. <laughs> so. Uh, you can buy our uh, Native Plants Healthy Planet merch at our website www.nativeplantshealthyplanet.com. Also, have some cool T-shirts up there. Uh, by this point, I'm I'm doubting. Uh, this is again. We're this is in the future that. Yeah. We're recording. We're, no, we're recording in the past. It's airing in the future. Yeah. Uh, By the time you're hearing I, this, it's like three yeah. weeks ago. Yeah, yeah. I'm yeah. doubting that I have Sasquatch native plants shirts up there <laughs> yet. But 
I'm not, so I'm not committing to doing that, but I'm going to try. I, so I, we'll I've been telling people we made them, but we left them with Sasquatch. So yeah, if you find him, yeah. you can get a shirt. Yeah. <laughs> so, um, yeah, and we don't keep any of the money from that. We donate it to uh, some really cool organizations that are doing really cool boots on the ground stuff with native plants um, where, like, realistically, it's a couple hundred bucks when we make those donations. So uh, we like to choose organizations that's going to go a long way with, not the big national ones that also could – rely on donations but um it's not going to make as big of an impact so uh do us a favor uh wherever you're listening to this podcast if it's possible leave a review um it goes a long long way with us uh five stars more than hopefully and uh and hit subscribe uh those are things that that really help us gauge if what we're doing is is uh, well received or not that kind of stuff and um and also pushes up in the Apple charts and Spotify charts so that more people are hearing about native plants. So uh, one last thing you can do to help us is actually share this with a friend. So if you have someone who you've been begging to eat pawpaws and, and try pawpaws, maybe this is the episode you share and say, hey, listen to this, and you'll learn a lot, lot more about this wonderful native fruit. Yeah. So, awesome. uh, yeah, with that, thank you, everyone. I'm Tom. And I am Fran. Thank you again, everyone. Adam, thank you so much for spending time with us today. This has been wonderful. Uh, Coming up next week, we have a new Buzz episode. Make sure you tune in, and until then, keep it native. In meadows, woods, wetlands, and dales grows a bounty of beauty that never fails. Our native plants, so diverse and so rare, treasures of our land beyond compare. For the friends below, soaring oaks above, each plant has a place each Wildlife, no need to disguise. Native plants, how you grace this land. In your diversity, we will take a stand. Thank you for listening to the Native Plants Healthy Planet Podcast, presented by Pinelands Nursery. Remember to like, share, follow, and comment.